Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Well, let's stand now and turn to, we're going to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. So open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we have one verse. We're going to look at verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we fix our minds on your glory, that you would bless us richly, that every one of our thoughts and meditations would be pleasing in your sight. And Father, that you would make us humble before your word. We are creatures, and you are eternal and immortal and invisible and the only wise God. And so we pray that we would, we would listen, that we would uh, be like little children before your word. And Father, that you would strengthen us and build us up by means of your Holy Spirit at work in our minds and our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So, a question to get us going this morning. Do you meditate on God? Do you settle your mind on who he is? That doesn't mean settling your mind on things that he does or things, you know, two, two parts removed from who he is. But the question I'm asking is, do you think about who God is? Do, do you delight to think about your creator? Right? Do you pause in the middle of a busy day and not pray? I'm not talking about prayer. That's a different sermon. Right? I'm not talking about asking him, going through your laundry list of needs. I'm talking about do you put your mind on God and think about who he is? Do you stop and think there is an infinite and eternal God superintending all the events of this world right now as I do whatever I do every day, right? Do you stop and think and set your mind on him? I think it's vital that we do so. I think if we're not doing that, then we are at the very best stagnating in our faith. But at the very worst, we're backsliding, right? And our minds, our minds can be so wrapped up in this world, can be so wrapped up in, in the next task, can be so wrapped up in just our own uh, lives, right, that we, we can force God out of our thoughts entirely, right? And, and we have a world that militates against us in that. Right? We have a world that would love for us to be distracted away from meditation upon God. You know, Steve Jobs didn't do us any favors when it comes to meditation. Right? 
Charles Spurgeon seemed to set his thoughts on God, and he wrote this. He said, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we find a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding out that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild donkey's colt. And with the solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday, and I know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. When you meditate on the mercy of God through, through his son, Jesus Christ, do you ever break out into song or break out into praise? Right? Does the contemplation of God cause your heart to uh, fill up with joy and even your eyes to, uh, to begin to uh, form tears? When you contemplate what the Apostle Paul wrote in this verse, verse 15 actually, a few verses before it, as it applies to you and every other believer in Jesus Christ, do you irresistibly break out into rejoicing? He says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Paul had been giving Pastor Timothy a lot of practical advice, practical commands. Instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, right? And instructing him on the use of the law and bringing uh, convictions, uh, to bringing them to conviction of sin. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. But for a moment, right, he turns away from all of those, those commands and directives that he's giving to Timothy and he turns to his own personal apprehension of the mercy of God. Right? He, and, and in this one verse, verse 17, he pauses and bursts out with a doxology. Right? He bursts out in praise of God and his eternal, wonderful attributes. This is a doxology, right? And doxology is the smashing of two Greek words together. It's doxa and logos. So it could, a good definition of this word is simply a glory word, right? A, a, a glory speaking. And so um, this, is, this is Paul giving glory to God. The apostle acknowledges and verbally brings attention to the glorious God. Is this a part of your daily experience? Is this a part of your daily life? Do you stop and, and give doxologies? 
Do you do it in your heart when you wake up in the morning, right? Do you do it in the evening after you've labored all day long and you're tired, right? Do you do it then? Do you do it when, uh, when, when you're walking along the road, when you're driving? Do you do this? Do you stop and give praise to God? Right? Or is your relationship to God intellectual? Right? Is it just, it's not felt, it's just thought. Right? You're a good reformed Christian, and so you don't want to get your hands up in the air. You don't want to sing songs. You just want to think deep thoughts. Well, Paul put his hands in the air, and after confessing that he was the, the worst sinner in the world, he still praised God, right? Is the joy of the Lord, the comprehension of the breadth and length and, and height and depth of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, a part of your daily wonder? Do you wonder at this? Or have you grown past wonder? Maybe you had wonder early in your walk with the Lord, right? When your first love was still strong in your heart. And now, now it's... Um, now your, your faith is, uh, is, you know, we might call it more mature and less emotional. But I would say I would call it less mature and uh, less mature because it doesn't engage the heart. Right? Are you, are you praising God in... In daily wonder, daily prayer, daily speech, daily praise? Or is it that our minds are so fixed on the things of the world that we seldom break forth into, into spontaneous praise? Right? We, we seldom meditate on the glory of the gracious God. We, we infrequently honor God in the way his glory deserves. I mean, I mean think about it. This is why you were created. God is jealous for his own glory. He will have praise. And if you won't praise him, guess what he's going to do? He's going to make these stones have mouths. These bricks will have mouths and they will praise him. Right? We have been made for this. And our, our praise of God and our meditations upon God are so, so few and far between. They're so weak right? Maybe they've been, you know, maybe at one point in our lives they were more frequent, but, but we've been weighed down by the cares and responsibilities of the world, and we've left this off. <clears throat> one thing, one indication of this is, is how hard it is for me to do this in my private prayers, Right? I get to my list. I get to my list. I get to pray for those people who have needs. I think about where, where uh, I, my sins and I confess those and I think about the things that I need to get done that I'm anxious about and I lift those to the Lord. But I don't stop and think that I'm entering into the presence of the almighty, eternal, immortal, invisible God and that he wants me to first praise him. Before I get to my junk, 
He wants me to praise him. And if I don't praise him, right, then why do I think he's going to be pleased to give me all these things that I've requested of him? It's a challenge to enter into prayer and try to, try to fill your prayers simply with praise of God for who he is. And that's different than thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving is still you-oriented, right? I give thanks that you did this for me and that for me and this for that person and all these things. But to come into prayer and say, God, you are wonderful, You are holy, holy, holy. You are the creator of the distant stars and of every hair on my head. You are immense and powerful. There is nothing that can thwart your power. What you will is... You know, do we stop and do we, do we pray like that? Do we, um, do we enter into his presence in awe of his power? Or have we just become accustomed to perfection and immortality and immensity? We've just become accustomed to it, right? We've become accustomed to the almighty God who can cast body and soul into hell. We, we've, we've come accustomed to the one who spoke light, and there was light. We just become casual, right, with God, casual with him. I mean, we, we, we would have more fear entering into the presence of the, the, the president of the corporation we work for. We would go into his office with fear and trembling, right, Going in to visit the, the headmaster of the school, we would be a little bit nervous. But in prayer, God, I need food today. I need this, I need that, I need this, I need that. Give, give, give. Me, 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 me. That's wrong. It's wrong of us to be so casual as we enter into the presence of God. Corporate worship forces us to do this praising, right? We have songs set before us, and they hopefully contain good doctrine and and praise of God for who he is, right? And so it's good for us to be in corporate worship because it reminds us to do these things. And, um, and, And that is so essential. But what about other moments of your week with your family, with your coworkers, with friends, with strangers, in the presence of the influential and the powerful, in the presence of the weak and sick? Do you speak with wonder about the glory of your creator? Do you do it with your children? Do your children see and hear you speaking about the gloriousness of God? Mine don't hear enough of that. My children don't hear me bursting forth in doxologies. God is good. God is faithful. God is wonderful. God is to be feared. Those sorts of doxologies. The Apostle Paul, certainly in these letters he writes to the churches, often interjects these doxologies. It, it, 
it appears in, in many of his letters, and so we know that this was a part of who he was. He was praising God. And I have to believe his speech as he traveled about the world's suffering included even more doxologies than obviously we have written here. But Romans 1.25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Right? He didn't have to add that who is blessed forever. He could have stopped at they've, they've served the creature rather than the creator. Period. But his mind immediately goes in contemplating the creator to the glory of that creator who is blessed forever. Romans 9.5 Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. He says the same thing there. And he says, Amen. Again. Romans 11.35, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Galatians 1, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Guess what he says? Amen. Right? He bursts out in these interjections. Right? Ephesians 3.21, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Philippians 4.20, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 6.16, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Those are all the times that the Apostle Paul, as he contemplates the works of God, breaks out into song where he breaks out into doxology. All of those examples, including the one in 1 Timothy, have the same elements. God is the focus Second, it has an, an attribution or of, of praise, right? And then third, the eternal duration of that praise, right? Blessed forever and ever. And then a concluding amen. As for the amen, uh, let me take that up first. We understand that when we add an amen after a statement, we are doing what? When we say amen or amen or however you say it. What are we doing? Let's be interactive for a moment. What are we doing? So be it. Affirming it. We're saying that's true. That is true. We're affirming its truth. We are adding our amen and we are saying yes, 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 that's true. Right? But there's more to it, right, than even that. Sproul says this, the expression... Amen is not simply an acknowledgement of personal agreement with what has been stated. It is an expression of willingness to submit to the implications of that word. To indeed be bound by it as if the word of God would put ropes around us not to strangle or retard us, but to hold us firmly in place, right? So it's, it's taking an oath. You say amen, you're saying, so be it, yes, that's true, but it's also I'm going to be bound by that truth. I'm going to be bound by it. I am affirming it before God. I am adding my amen to what he has revealed in his word. And so to add an amen to a statement is to say, yes, that is true, but it's I am 
wonderfully and blessedly bound by that truth. It is to say, I believe that and will live accordingly. It is for the truth and reality of God to move from the head to the heart and then out to the hands, right? It is affirming that that's what's going to be with this. Not only is God eternal, but that is going to bind the way I live. It's not just going to be a thought in my head. It's going to be, it's going to inform the way I discipline my children. It's going to inform the way that I prepare for worship on Sunday. It's going to inform the way that I do everything in my life. And so the other element of these doxologies by Paul are also their, their, the duration of the reality of the truth spoken forever and ever. The doxologies from Paul remind us, that, uh, remind us of one of the central truths of Scripture, one that we read um, in Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? His blessedness, his, his sameness, what he is in all of his glory is what it will always be and always has been through all uh, time and even before time. The perfect character, the perfect glory, the perfect power, the perfect perfection of God is fixed and unchangeable. We read this. Um, in 1 Samuel 15, and it describes the nature of, of the fixed nature of God's perfections. The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. He's not a man, right? His nature is fixed. Ours is a mess. It needs to be changed, right? God will ever and always be the same. His essence, his attributes, his plans, he does not change, he does not lie, and all that he de determines to come to pass will come to pass. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And we would add to that our amen. Right? And so, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1.17, this one little verse, calls out these four particular attributes of God in his doxology. One, God is the eternal king. Two, God is immortal. Three, God is invisible. And then four, God is the only God. So first, just as we read in... Um, just as we read in the scripture reading... Earlier, God reigns as a sovereign king eternally, past, present, and future. Jeremiah 10.10 says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Psalm 10, the Lord is a king forever and ever. Psalm 29, the Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. Revelation 19.16, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, right, and Lord of Lords. As the king, he has what? He has all authority, as would an earthly king over his own realm. Where does God's kingdom extend? Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. 
Our triune God has authority over all he has created, which is everything that is seen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That which he created, he has authority over, right? Kuiper famously said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That's what God says, mine, all of it. Over the distant, newly formed star, hundreds of thousands of light years away, God declares, mine, I'm the king of that star. Over the one-celled microorganism, God has authority as king. Over the deepest part of the earth, God claims that and says that's mine. Over the winds, right, that blow on Saturn, he says that's mine. Right. Over all the nations of the earth that are vainly raging, God has authority as king over his church. God has authority as king over you and your households. God reigns as king and says over your family, patriarchs, mine. Mine. God has all authority. He is king. Rather, he is the king, the one king, and he is that eternally. His kingdom will know no end. Now, there should be great comfort in that, right? Really wonderful stability in knowing that God reigns as king. And there should be great confidence in this. You can go about raising your children, fighting your temptations, right? Doing um, what you can to see uh, abortion ended in our nation, applying the gospel to hard hearts, loving your spouse, living, and even dying with and almighty eternal king laying it out, superintending it all. And on top of that, that almighty eternal king loves you and he takes care of your soul and will never leave you or forsake you. He is not going to get too busy because he's, and he's, he's an omnipotent king. right? He doesn't, he doesn't get distracted because of some complexity. He's, he's right there with you. It is one thing for there to be a sovereign king directing things. It's quite another to have a sovereign king who loves you um, doing that directing, right? We love, we love because he first loved us. He says, keep me um, as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. The psalmist says that. And remember that this veil of tears that we live in now will be superseded by the new heavens and new earth. And there we will live in the consummated kingdom of God with God himself present, the king reigning, right, in that realm. And that eternal Sabbath in that redeemed world will will far surpass the greatest joys that we have here. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Things we can't even imagine he's prepared. Second, it says that God is immortal or imperishable or we could say undecaying. He's there. He has always been there. He will always be there. If you turn 
later in 1 Timothy, we read that this quality is something that alone belongs to God. It alone belongs to God by nature. He is he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality. Don't make that mistake. Immortality. He alone possesses immortality, it says, and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, we... We will have an immortal or imperishable, imperishable body after our resurrection. Uh, the same word is used in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 in describing our body as is used of God in our passage in Timothy. So what's described of our body, same word used that's describing God here. The difference is that we do not have an imperishable body by nature. Right? We receive it as a gift from God, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. God has never, ever been prone to decay. He's immortal. He is everlasting. He's imperishable. He is undecaying. We are, we are so surrounded by decaying things, by decay and the perishing that... It, that it is hard for us to conceive of God in this respect. I mean, I even walked into the office this morning and there was the smell of banana with this old banana peel. And I thought, I've got to get this out of here because if I don't, when I come in on Wednesday, taking a day of vacation, Monday's my day off, taking Tuesday off. Um, if I come in on Wednesday, the smell of decay is going to be terrible. It already was terrible, to tell you the truth. Thanks, Ben. Um, <clears throat> but it's hard for us to conceive. We see decay everywhere. Like you, you leave a sandwich out on the, the, you leave a piece of cheese out on the counter, and it decays in an hour. It just gets warm, right? And it's, 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 and it's corrupted. That never happens in, in any sense with God. He does not suffer with the Dutch dwindles. His mind won't decay. He does, he, he, like our bodies, constantly decay. And so, no, he has been the same. Absolutely the same. No progress needs to be made in perfection, right? He's been the same yesterday, today, and forever, ever. And so he is the same. Third, God is invisible or unseen. As the Apostle John says, no one has seen God at any time. 1 John 4.12. And yet we know that the Son of God is visible, right? God is visible, Son of God is visible. The Apostle Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Those apostles, um, well, what about those Old Testament appearances of God, right? What do we do with those? What do we do with those Old Testament appearances? Well, I would say that if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, it's very easy to explain those appearances of God, right? Um, God 
before Jesus, before his incarnation, was visible in those images. God is the one, um, again, Paul says later in Timothy, God is the one whom no man has seen or can see. And so, um, in Colossians, that passage where it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, um, we, we come to contemplate this, right? We learn that God is a spirit, that he doesn't have a body, that he's invisible, that he doesn't, that, um, he doesn't have, uh, that, that he cannot be seen. But Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, and we certainly can see flesh. We certainly can see that, right? This is why um, the first chapter of John, which teaches us that the word took on flesh, says that no one has seen God and Jesus has explained him, right? No one has seen God, but Jesus does something to explain him, that which we can't see, right? Jesus is deity incarnate, so he is the image of the invisible God. That is precisely why Jesus said to Philip, he who has seen me has what? has seen the Father, right? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the visible representation of the spiritual, invisible God. Now, what are we to make of all those Old Testament passages where it says that people saw God, Jacob wrestles with God, then says, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. In Exodus, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, 70 elders are invited up uh, to sup with God, and it says they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphires clear as the sky itself. Manoah, the father of Samson, says to his wife after speaking with the one whose name is wonderful, we will surely die, for we have seen God. Inspired word has just taught us that these people saw God and that no one has seen God at any time. Right? There are many other examples, so how, how do we make sense of this? One, one way is to think of it that God's essence will never be seen by us. God's essence will never be seen by us. Um, but that God shows something of his glory to us. Many of the passages where it seems God is appearing corporally is really the appearance of his glory. Right? The Shekinah glory falling upon the new temple, for example, what is seen is his glory, not some sort of form, right? Because as we've learned, God is invisible. Another way these passages are explained is that the language is an accommodation to our limited understanding. We, we could say that scripture is lisping to us so that we could possibly understand it. It speaks in such a way that we will begin to understand um, what God was doing. And these are referred to as anthropomorphisms. God is said to have eyes and arms and body parts so that we will understand his attributes, right? It's an accommodation to our limited knowledge. Another way and perhaps the best way to think of these instances is to understand them as pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ himself, the one who images forth the invisible God. He's the one who manifests God. He was given this work, this task to manifest the glory of God by the Father in these few instances before he took on flesh eternally, right? He did in shadow what he would do in reality when he took on the flesh in the incarnation. 
This is what Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God. Yet this attribute of Jesus Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God, becomes explicit when he comes to live among us and takes on the flesh of a man. Remember, Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. To look on Jesus is to be given that explanation, a manifestation, a representation, an image of God. And that is an amazing blessing, right? To be able to see through the Son, to see the Father, even though he is invisible, to see and to be able to look upon God himself. God the Father is invisible. Finally, enough on that. Finally, God is the only God. God is the only God. There is perhaps no more controversial statement that we could make today than to say that the God revealed by the Spirit in the Scriptures is the only God. Right? <clears throat> Isaiah 45 says it this way For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it, He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. This is the God you worship here today if indeed you worship him, right? Do you think on his attributes and rejoice in knowing this wonderful God? Have you seen him with your spiritual eyes? And I hope so. It's my prayer that you would rejoice in him and sing about him and raise up your doxologies, even as the apostle Paul did. And so let's encourage one another in this. Let's encourage one another to sing praises to God. And how do you do that? Just praise God. <laughs> praise God in other people's presence. Praise God to, you know, speak of God's glories to the checkout lady at Lidl. Right? Be weird. Be weird. Life will be much more interesting if 
we were much weirder. <laughs> I'll close with this from Charnock, Charnock's classic book, The Existence and Attributes of God, which if you want to read a book and inform your mind about the attributes of God to be able to praise him, that's a good one. It's just going to take you 16 years to read it. Okay, It's very good. It's very dense. It's, um, but it, it'd be worth your effort to work through it. He says this, Who, whatsoever God is, he is infinitely so. He is infinite wisdom, infinite goodness, infinite knowledge, infinite power, infinite spirit, infinitely distant from the weakness of creatures, infinitely mounted above the excellencies of creatures, as easy to be, as easy to be known that he is, as impossible to be comprehended what he is. Conceive of him as excellent without any imperfection, a spirit without parts, great without quantity, perfect without quality, everywhere without place, powerful without members, understanding without ignorance, wise without reasoning, light without darkness, infinitely more excelling the beauty of all creatures than the light in the sun, pure and unviolated, exceeds the splendor of the sun dispersed and divided through a cloudy and misty air. And when you have risen to the highest, conceive him yet infinitely above all you can conceive and acknowledge the infirmity of your own minds. And whatever conception comes into your mind, say, this is not God. <laughs> this is not God. God is more than this. If I could conceive him, he were not God. For God is incomprehensibly above whatever I can say, whatever I can think, and conceive of him. That's wrapped up. In verse 17 of 1 Timothy, God is infinite, right? Let's get to praising him. Let's get to speaking our doxologies.